0: Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi everyone, welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. NFT marketplaces are entering the mainstream eBay recently announced an acquisition of Known Origin, and Uniswap is acquiring marketplace aggregator Genie. I recently sat down with Jacob Horn and T. Goins, founders of the NFT marketplace protocol Zora to talk about the benefits of having a decentralized marketplace protocol. Subscribe to my premium Bulletin newsletter to watch. You can subscribe at laurashin.bulletin.com slash subscribe. Oasis Network is one of the fastest growing layer one blockchains designed to support privacy, speed and scalability in Web3. Learn more and join the community at oasisprotocol.org. Harness the full power of the Avalanche Network with Core, your new Web3 command center built by Ava Labs, Core is more than just a wallet. It's a non-custodial browser extension engineered for users to seamlessly and securely experience Web3 like never before. Explore Avalanche dApps, NFTs, bridges, subnets, and more today. With the crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Today's topic is Staked ETH. My guests are Hasu, strategy lead at Flashbots and strategic advisor to Lido, and Tarun Chitra, founder of Gauntlet. Welcome, Hasu and Tarun.
1: Hey, Laura and Tarun. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Hey, great to be back.
0: This is actually going to be the first in two-part series on Staked ETH or Steeth slash Lido, since there are a couple of big issues regarding it that I felt should be separated out into their own shows. Today's show mostly focuses on Steeth's role in recent events, such as those involving Celsius and Three Arrows, that we also get into issues with Lido's power and proposals to address that. Tarun and Hasu, before we dive into some of these recent issues around Steeth, let's make sure people understand what it even is and why people have been wanting it, meaning what it is they do with it. So Hasu, why don't you start with a description?
1: Sure. So Staking, in its native form on Ethereum, has... A few problems. right? So for one, there's the operational complexity. Users want to stake the ETH, but not run the hardware, uh, miss the attestations, get slashed, etc. Then there's the cost. Staking is only possible in multiples of 32 ETH. And even, even in the bear market, that's still a lot of money for a lot of people that they might not have lying around. And the third problem is liquidity. So if you stake, you have to lock up your capital and you cannot use it in DeFi at the same time. And This is a problem, especially because the beacon chain right now is a one-way street. So uh, people can only stake, but they cannot unstake. um, And unstaking is only uh, becoming available in the update after the merge, which is called Capella, and that's expected to be around uh, eight to nine months out. So Lido is a decentralized liquid staking protocol, and it works the following way. So uh, users give the EVE to Lido, and then Lido gives it to one of 29... Professional node operators who stake it on their behalf. Lido issues the users a token that represents the stake on the beacon chain. And this token is called Stake Eve. After withdrawals from the beacon chain are enabled, from that point on, users can take one staked Eve and redeem it for one Eve. And the reason that this token is so useful and Lido has been very popular to date is that this staked Eve is like a somewhat a sort of inferior form of ETH itself. It is, it's is like a token that people can use to represent their stake and you can use it in DeFi. They can trade out of it, which wouldn't be possible otherwise, and they can collateralize it in lending markets uh, like Aave or MakerDAO. So in many ways, users have found this to be better than running their own hardware and staking directly.
0: Yeah, and just to be clear, oftentimes... When they get the staked ETH, they deposit to Aave. In order to borrow more ETH, stake that, and then get more ETH, et cetera. (laughs) So one question that I wanted to ask here is, you know, we were talking about how part of the reason for this is because people want to be able to have liquidity on the Ether that they stake. And I was just wondering also, because there are other systems that use delegated proof of stake. Does Ethereum's lack of delegated proof of stake contribute to the need for stake ETH, or is that not the case?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, one important piece to remember about this is that there's sort of a philosophical bias in the Ethereum 2 community against any form of delegation. I think the long-term goal of that research community was to have sort of a one-person, one-node type of version of the world where everyone was running their own validator they have their own keys of course i think in practice things got much more complicated and we started to observe basically exchanges offering sort of staked eth products like centralized exchanges like finance and coinbase where basically if you left ethereum on exchange then they would delegate it and run a validator and give you some or most of the yield and I, I think effectively Lido wanted to make a decentralized version of that possible. And I, of course, there's there's multiple versions of staking derivatives now, but Lido has sort of the dominant market share. Um, if, if we look right now, it's like a little over 90% of staking derivatives are in Lido. But I think one of the main things was exchanges started to aggregate this power and it became clear that there needed to be some sort of decentralized alternative. And the decentralized alternative's main value proposition over the centralized version was that you could use it in DeFi in different ways. And so I think that the genesis does sort of stem from that and that, that is sort of, you know, I think one of the reasons it, it is effectively an in, indirect form of delegation, it boils down to the sort of philosophical divide amongst Ethereum 2 researchers. Uh, towards whether to have delegation or not.
0: Yeah, and I guess since Ethereum doesn't really have governance, maybe even delegated proof of stake wouldn't even make sense. Let's now talk about the reason why Steeth has been in the news so much. One of the main issues is that people feel that Steeth has been mispriced. For much of its lifetime, the price of Steeth has basically been the same as the price of ETH. Sometimes maybe a little bit less, like 0.99 or 0.98 ETH. But once the issues with Terra began a little over a month ago, then it began falling a little bit. And then once the problems with Celsius and three arrows kicked off, it really took a dive. And it, now it's at more kind of like 0.94 or 0.95 ETH. Why do you think that is?
1: For one, I think we can say that staked ETH has not been mispriced to date. And um, I can give an explanation for that. So one staked ETH, as we said, can be redeemed for one ETH when the withdrawals become available. And sort of this is what we would call the primary market exchange rate. And then what you described sort of is the secondary market exchange rate, the price at which stake EF holders can, can sell it before withdrawals become enabled. And so staked eth is a rebasing asset. That's something we should also mention. So meaning its balance goes up over time. So if the staking yield were 5%, then after one year of holding staked Eve, then you would have in your uh, account... staked ETH. And then you can use it and redeem it for 1.05 ETH. So if withdrawals were uh, enabled today, then I think we could straightforwardly say that one staked ETH must always be worth one ETH, right? Because there's like a no arbitrage condition. Like if if it were like more valuable, then people would sort of create more staked ETH and sell it. And if it were less valuable, then people would withdraw uh, The ETH and sell that instead, right? So, uh, but they would always be arbitraged uh, towards the price of one. So now, but this is not yet possible to, to withdraw, right? So instead, we have several market forces acting on this exchange rate between staked ETH and ETH. And the biggest one is sort of the fact that it is a yield bearing asset. So, and this is sort of a market force that pushes staked ETH to trade above ETH. Why? Because If you stake it today, then you can redeem it for more in the future. So that's one reason like for staked ETH to trade above one ETH. And then you have a couple of reasons why it should trade below one ETH. And that's sort of, there's risk inherent to Lido, mainly technical risk and governance risk. And then you have risk inherent to Ethereum and the merge. Um, So whether they can execute it on the timeline that we all expect. And finally, you have liquidity risk. So that. Sort of, you need to sell your staked ETH at any time before withdrawals become available, but sort of the price is somewhere where you have to sell it at a discount, right? And depending on the current market conditions, sort of these market forces are stronger or weaker than one another. So before sort of the recent market downturn, staked ETH has indeed been trading at one ETH. Why? Because investors were sort of favoring this yield that they could get from staking, more than the risks, and especially sort of this cost of liquidity. And then the market turned. And all of a sudden, this is what always happens when in every market, sort of when there's a downturn, investors and market participants really start to favor liquidity, right? They want to be in the most liquid assets where they can be the safest and they can sort of sit out the storm and react to any market conditions. And so I would say this paired with you already alluded to it, but a lot of forced selling from parties that uh, were also owning Stake Eve and got liquidated. So, this then sort of caused, yeah, basically uh, selling uh, from Stake Eve into Eve and sort of pushed the price downward. But that doesn't mean that it was mispriced before. In fact, you can sort of easily say, easily see why that's not the case, because if Stake Eve, and this is what some people argue, should always trade below one Eve then anyone who would want to join the beacon chain and start staking should always buy staked ETH on the market and stake that way and never stake directly. But if they did that, then they would just arbitrage the price of staked ETH until it is one ETH again. So we can see basically whenever there's excess demand to join the beacon chain, then the two should be exactly priced one-to-one. And when then there's sort of a, a drop in demand to stake and people, for example, favor liquidity or the risk goes up of ETH2 or of Lido, then you have these other market forces that push it down. And there's no way to arbitrage it back up because withdrawals are not yet enabled. So in a nutshell, that would be my explanation for how stake ETH trades against ETH in various market conditions.
0: Tarun, do you agree with that?
1: I think that's sort of like the correct maybe like
2: zeroth order or first order model. There's some second order effects which actually knocked, were kind of the scary part slash why I didn't sleep for a lot of days um, and was pushing all these, you know, we at Gauntlet were pushing a lot of governance proposals to try to like scare people into reducing their leverage. But basically I think while that is true in sort of this idealized case of like really high liquidity this indirect way of kind of closing the arbitrage loop. A lot of people who were participating in this market were mainly participating in a quite over-levered way. So there were certainly a few sort of people who offered vaults where you could deposit ETH and they would go basically mint staked ETH, borrow ETH against a staked ETH, and recurse that a certain amount of times. And they sort of hard-coded a lot of their assumptions about like, how much leverage is okay. So if you think the price is, is always at one or very close to one, then you could basically say, hey, I can like, take a lot of leverage. If you think it actually has some volatility and might actually go down to 0.94, you might say, okay, maybe I'll only take 2x leverage. Now, the problem with some of these vaults and the one that was the scariest and was the closest to having the most cascading liquidation failures of when Three Arrows made that 30,000 staked ETH sale was instadap and so instadap has this fault that basically was a little bit reckless with how it provide how much leverage it allowed people to take because it really basically made this assumption that staked eth to eth would like never go below 0.97 and i mean there was this moment right after the staked eth to uh, the three arrow staked eth trade where the the net liquidity for uh, selling staked ETH. So if there's a like a liquidation, someone will basically buy the staked ETH collateral from Aave and then sell it somewhere. And staked teeth's dominant uh, liquidity is on chain, and it's mainly in Curve. There is a bit in Uniswap. Most of that comes due to a combination of like how incentives are constructed, and you know where the Lido governance token and the Curve governance tokens are, are sort of provided as incentives. And there was a really crazy point where like basically there wasn't enough liquidity in the curve pool to handle all of the liquidations if you had this thing where instadap got liquidated and right below instadap that basically if you assume the liquidator immediately sells all the instadap positions they basically trigger sort of a cascade of like some other positions now like the price goes down say it was at 0.94 the instadap gets liquidated when it gets liquidated they sell it on curve and the price goes down to 0.93 and then when it's at 0.93, there's some other loans in Ave that get liquidated. And there was, there was definitely a huge contagion risk there. And most of that had to do with the fact that the market's belief in this kind of low volatility of this price meant that people over leveraged themselves. And some of the reason this liquidity risk got priced incorrectly to some extent was basically because people were people weren't accounting for the fact that like the amount of leverage being used was was really high and and i think that impact you know obviously has has stuck with the minds of people who are purchasing stake deeds which is why it not kind of has not been i mean there's a lot of bids now at, from 0.93 up nowadays but it it doesn't seem like there's 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 definitely people realize that there're these like extremely scary automated vault strategies that basically are quite reckless and the end users, I think, don't realize that they're kind of in this sort of precarious position. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that plus the general macro environment altogether just suddenly has everybody sort of, you know, pulling up the drawbridges and being like, oh, you know, I'm not going to do these risky things. Uh, JR on Twitter asked, was stable swap or Steeth slash ETH curve, uh, ETH curve pool, a good automated marker maker choice for an asset that quote unquote shouldn't trade one to one. So I'm not sure how this curve pull how it was set up, but like, was it something where the assumptions were that it would always be one to one? Or
2: so I mean it 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 does assume you're sort of mean reverting around some point. So it's an it's an automated market maker that so curve is sort of I think the simplest way to think about it is there's the two most simple types of automated market makers are one which is sort of a constant price so people put in reserves of asset a and asset b and um you say hey uh, asset b always costs five units of asset a and then basically people can can buy until you know there's only asset a left or only asset b left and that's sort of a linear uh, automated market maker it's not it, it it gives you a fixed price you have no price impact um and it's good for things that should be kept at roughly a constant price. On the other hand, you have something like Uniswap, where you, you have this sort of constant product type of formula. And in a constant product formula, the price is based on the ratio of the amount of reserves in the pool. So like on each trade, the reserves are going, you know, one, one side of the reserves are gaining the one that's sort of more less in demand and the one that's depleting is the one that's more in demand. And curve is sort of an average of the two of them. It combines this this very flat, doesn't move the price, at least within some range piece, and then moves the price a lot when you're outside. Effectively, I think that there is, to some extent, some bias in curve towards kind of staying near the the center point. However, some of the trade sizes we saw were large enough that I, I think we got outside of the kind of flat region. So there's a parameter in the curve system called an amplification factor which controls effectively how big does the trade have to be until it d- until the price starts moving really fast and i think that was actually being monitored and to some extent adjusted not not probably not as frequently as it should have been long story short is i i i think you could imagine if curves amplification factor was adjusted more frequently and the incentives were adjusted it could it would have could have been um fine i think it just Things sort of happen quite fast, and I'm not. I wouldn't make the argument that Uniswap V3 would be better for sure, because you would have to still have people constantly adjusting the ranges in Uniswap V3. And in a kind of crisis time, if if no one actually does that in time, then like someone makes a trade, and then there's no liquidity on the other side. So uh, I, I think like there's the the dialectic here is there's not really one best design here. It's better to actually have many different AMMs being providing liquidity, and it's just that. In the case of Lido, it mainly was curve.
1: Yeah, I yeah. So I think I would like to connect a few dots here. So from Tarun's previous answer, so you make you made a very good point, which is that sort of the, the pricing model that sort of I laid out for like stake D versus Eve is correct, but it wasn't this, the pricing model that the whole market used. And it's very important that sort of people understand why a certain asset should. Like trades a certain way and how it should trade under certain market conditions, right? Because otherwise they just make financial decisions that could be bad for them or in the case of cascading liquidations be bad for the uh, entire ecosystem. That's the first thought. And the second is sort of Lido has been incentivizing liquidity around certain price points or like putting incentives on certain pools. Why? They did this in order to uh provide this service for stake yield holders to you know have the liquidity and sell their Eve when they want to right so they they want to ensure that there's a liquid market and then the second dot is the right curve design so the goal of the perfect pricing curve is basically to predict where the market maker in that case should be deploying the qu- liquidity right at what price points they should sort of reserve and put their inventory and sort of make it available for sale. And so I think what, uh, what how the, all of this fits together is basically that the curve pool hasn't been, uh, you know, as good as sort of reacting to when the market conditions changed according to the pricing model. And um, the fair price for stake ETH was starting to be sort of below one. and And so I think Different, like using a more flexible AMM, like such as Uniswap v3, I think would have made it easier to sort of just shift where uh, prices should be quoted. Because what Lido should, in fact, do is not incentivize liquidity at the pack. They should incentivize liquidity at whatever is the fair market price at the time. At least that's my view. Because I think that's where they get sort of the most liquidity for their value, right? Because if they were deploying it below the market price, then It wouldn't be very effective for anyone who needs that liquidity right now. And if they were deploying it above the fair point, then it could be arbitraged down to what the fair price is. So I think they are always incentivized to maximize liquidity around what the current fair price is. And in order for that, uh, using the right AMM and the right curve design is very important.
0: Earlier, we were talking about how we had all these cascading liquidations, especially exacerbated by some of these automated vaults, like by Instadep and stuff. And I just, you know, sort of need to address uh, one of the elephants in the room, which is that Hasu, you host a podcast with Suju, one of the partners behind Three Arrows Capital. So I don't know if there's anything you can either reveal about that situation and its effect on the market or your relationship to 3AC or anything like that.
1: So uh, like everyone else, I, I learned about the <laughs> Three Arrows situation from the media. I haven't talked to Sue since. Yeah, so um, I think if I had to guess, like the connection to this is that both Three Arrows and Celsius were both large owners of Stake Eve, like as were many others. But I don't think it contributed in any way. So the the Stake Eve, Eve price uh, deviating from one contributed in any way to you know how all of this played out. If anything, I think sort of the causality here is reversed because. Both Celsius and Three Arrows became large sellers of staked ETH, and as Tru was pointing out earlier, they had to sell several hundred thousand staked ETH into the market. So that would be my take on the situation.
0: But I don't understand. I thought wouldn't that then lower the price of Steve? So why is it that you don't think that that contributed to not being?
1: Oh, so I'm saying that I'm saying that the reason that the price declined. Was in part due to their forced selling.
0: Oh, you're right. right. Yeah. Oh, okay. For some reason, I misheard you and I thought you said it the opposite way. So obviously, we, we don't really quite know the full state of everything now with either of those companies. But assuming that they both still have some staked ETH, then do you imagine? it's more likely that they might be forced to sell even more of it to try to recover some liquidity for their users or LPs. And then, are, you know, are, be, are we basically looking at another potential depression of the price in the near future?
1: I don't know if they have any more staked ETH. I haven't been following the situation. June, do you know? Um, I think some of their wallets have a little bit,
2: but nowhere near as much as the Sunday, June 12th. That was like the... Kind of crazy, like in 4 a.m. roughly Eastern time, that was like when that huge sale happened. And then there was just a ton of bots trading right mm-hmm. after that.
1: What I heard about 3 Arrows uh, as well is that they are entirely out of liquid assets. And so beef would be a liquid asset and sort of illiquid assets would be investments that they made that are somehow locked up or subject to vesting schedules, right? So uh, I don't think um, stake Thief would be affected by that.
0: And what about Celsius?
1: Uh,
2: they do still have some stake Thief, but mainly because a lot of it is locked up as collateral. Their strategies, at least the ones that we've spent time analyzing, don't—they don't just lever on lever up on. Stake ETH directly. They borrow stable coins and they borrow other assets. Um, that was why they were quite close to being liquidated, actually, because the ETH price drop was more deadly to them than than the stake ETH ETH ratio, because they borrowed a lot of stable coins and farmed in other places. So Celsius was a little more, ironically, probably less systemic risk to stake ETH itself, but like more systemic risk to oh, the overall, like all DeFi protocols. Uh, whereas I think the three arrows and sort of insadap vaults were very like concentrated in the stake teeth type of thing. But yeah, I mean, I mean, Celsius was really farming anything and everything that had I, I had not heard of some of these protocols that they were uh, they were putting their capital putting their users capital in. I guess.
0: <laughs> oh dear! Oh dear! Okay, so in a moment, we're going to talk about a whole host of other related issues, starting with the merge. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Oasis aims to offer improved privacy and scalability compared to other existing blockchains. They feature 99% lower gas fees versus Ethereum, high throughput, instant finality, and defense against MEV, making it ideal for decentralized applications. Oasis invites prominent Web3 developers to apply for its grants program and receive full ecosystem support, along with up to $50,000 in grant funding to create dApps in DeFi, GameFi, or NFTs. Join the community of innovative developers today and build the future of Web3 with Oasis Network. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Is your Web3 experience hindered by inadequate crypto wallets and browser extensions? Labs has created Core, a free, non-custodial browser extension engineered for Avalanche users to have a more seamless and secure Web3 experience. The best-in-class Avalanche bridge now offers native support for the Bitcoin network. Put your Bitcoin to work in the robust DeFi ecosystem by bridging BTC to Avalanche today. With Core, you can also easily swap assets, Display your NFTs in style, store your assets in a ledger-enabled wallet, and put real dollars into your crypto wallet in just a few clicks. Core is everything you need for a simple, secure, and convenient web three experience. Download the free Core browser extension from Google Chrome's App Store today. Back to my conversation with Hasu and Tarun. Okay, so as we were discussing earlier, once the merge happens, that's actually not going to, you know, immediately affect the liquidity of Steeth. I think you said it will still be locked up for like eight or nine months.
1: Yeah. So I think that the um, hard fork that would enable withdrawals is scheduled to be around uh, six months after the merge. So basically it's time to the merge plus six months. And, you know, most people are estimating that to be around eight to nine months.
0: Okay so let's talk a little bit about how uncertainty about the merge has also been affecting either the the price of steth or just some of these issues that that we're seeing these are this is like a quick lightning round what's your level of confidence that the merge will happen in the next few months
1: um i would say like 70% that it happens by october i'm perhaps more pessimistic i actually think it'll be
2: early next year not 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 this year
0: okay and for both of you what's the level of confidence that you have that the merge will go smoothly
1: i think pretty high if they do decide to go through with it then i think the amount of testing that we're seeing and the amount of preparation will um, make me pretty confident that i think it can get delayed, as turun is saying but i think if they do go through with it then it'll most likely go smoothly
0: and uh, so on a range of one to ten ten being Extremely confident one being not confident. How confident are you that it will go smoothly?
1: Seven to eight.
2: I'm somewhat more pessimistic also. Uh, one thing I, I do think is maybe being underweighted probability-wise is just like the fact that miners really enjoy keeping the POW fork alive, like keeping the current chain alive, removing the difficulty bomb and just continue mining on the existing chain. I, I, I know that's not it it might not be the the most likely scenario, but I don't think it's a- as low a probability as, um, you know, if I were to read kind of Twitter sentiment.
1: You know, I, I, have, a, I have a counter-take on that, which is, I think the more that miners uh, do something adversarial around the merge, the sooner the merge will happen, not the later.
0: Wait, I'm sorry, the more that miners do what?
1: The more, the more miners uh, engage in adversarial behavior, around the merge, I think, um, the more likely are Ethereum core developers to pull the merge ahead instead of pushing it out. That would be my take based on conversations with them. Right. I just, I'm not sure how
2: easy it is to gauge the, whether they'd
1: actually be doing that.
2: I mean, obviously they'd have to collude to do it to some extent and make a new client upgrade and stuff on their own. But I just think like, the probability of that happening is like weighted way too low to me. But I think I think like testing wise, I, I mean the fact that they already got one of the test nets converted is is actually a good sign. I'm just still a little more I, I just think like, yeah, the 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 minor adversarial behavior I think is maybe being somewhat underestimated. So I think my confidence is probably like a little less than Hasu, but like six or seven.
0: Yeah. After reporting on my book and how the Ether Classic thing went down. I would definitely say it does not take a big group of people. Yeah. Cause back at that time, you know, most people in Ethereum really did support the hard fork actually. As, at least as far as I can tell. And I definitely think as we've seen that it was certainly a minority, but that's all you need really. So <laughs> after their after stakers are able to withdraw their, their stake teeth after the merge, how do you expect them to behave in terms of the withdrawing? Do you, Expect to see that everybody will want to withdraw, or do you think it'll be kind of a slower type of withdrawal, or how do you no, see that playing I
1: mean, out? I quite the opposite, I think. So not after withdrawal, but I think first of all, like after the merge, I think the demand to stake will go up. Why? Because right now, stakers on the Beacon Chain only earn uh, the Beacon Chain block subsidy, but uh, after the merge, um, the Beacon Chain will be uh, responsible for Ordering Ethereum itself, right? So it will earn transaction fees and MEV on top. So you can expect the staking yield to go up quite a bit uh, from where it is today. So I think that will, I mean, also sort of reducing this entire uncertainty around will the merge happen and what timeline will it happen? I think sort of confidence in Ethereum's ability to execute on major upgrades will go way up, sort of making investors more optimistic about the longevity of the project. So I would expect sort of actually like much more stake to come in after the merge. And then, um, yeah, it doesn't really make sense that there would be large withdrawals. Unless in fact, staked ETH at the time is then trading like below one ETH. As we said, there are market conditions where it can trade below one ETH. And if that happens, then the arbitrage will ensure that um, staked ETH is being bought up on the market at a discount and then withdrawn. And then the the, the ETH is pulled out and sold. Uh, in order to make a profit, so that's when you should expect withdrawals to happen. But if Stag Eve is trading anywhere near to one Eve, then I don't see any reason why there should be any withdrawals. I think one sort of important thing that will
2: be true is just like how liquidity incentivization works around the the withdrawal event. So if you know there's a multiple AMMs with you know greater than twenty plus percent of the overall liquidity so that you know you have one that's maybe like a curve pool that's good for when you're in kind of the mean reverting phase and then you have something that's more like uniswap v3 for that phase and you have incentivized liquidity accurately between the two of those i think you could actually be quite fine even if people are unlevering because there is one other impact which is upon the merge people who were really levered May actually want to lower their leverage in stake ETH terms and increase it in ETH raw ETH terms, depending on what yield opportunities exist post uh, post merge. Which they might might be there might be yield opportunities that are specialized to ETH two at launch that basically you know you can't access with staked ETH. So so there, that would be a condition I would say like provided the liquidity incentivization is diffuse enough and can cover sort of these sort of automated rebalancing strategies. I think it it should be relatively safe. I don't yeah, to Hossu, to kind of the same as Hasu's point out. I don't really expect people to just like rush to the exit all at the same time. Unless, yeah, unless there's really some some real reason to redeem for your raw ETH immediately. Um, I think there'll be a lot of people who do it just to test it and see just, you know, like imagine you've had, you, you minted staked ETH at Genesis, like of course you're going to redeem some to see if it's working correctly, right? Like At the, at the end of the day, is that, that there's, there's certainly going to be some amount of that but I would, the only people I'd be worried about are people who are like automated vault strategies that have you know, significant amount of TVL and they, they try to redeem because there's some new uh, yield Form.
0: And so what do you guys expect to happen to the price of Steve after people can withdraw their ETH?
1: Well, I mean, after that point, the uh, the prices are sort of tethered at one-to-one due to arbitrage, right? So as we already touched on earlier, so if staked are trading above 1 ETH, then people should mint more of it and sell it, bringing the price back down. And if stake ETH are trading below 1 ETH, then people should buy it on the market and um, withdraw the ETH and sell it, bringing the price up. So, sort of leaving out sort of more nuanced um, sort of points like there being like a withdrawal queue, then I would say that the, the price is like absent sort of this nuance, the prices are tethered one to one. Same as you would expect with something like USDC or Tether or WBTC, where arbitrageurs are basically always keeping you know the price of these in line with the underlying.
0: So another potential issue with staked ETH is how dominant Lido is in particular. And as Tarun mentioned earlier, uh, Lido's market share of all staked ETH on the beacon chain is about 91% of all of the staked ETH derivatives. So why do you think that level of dominance has happened?
1: Well, first of all, I would say sort of the 91% number is is sort of a bit misleading. I think what I would look at is sort of the... Uh, overall share of Lido on the beacon chain, right, um, which is around thirty-two uh, percent the time of recording, I believe. So, so first of all, I would think uh, there's like two two lenses basically to to look at this from. The first is Lido's impact on Ethereum security, and the second is then looking at the counterfactual. So, what if Lido didn't exist? And so, starting with the first one, I think there are some arguments that you can make that LIDO is in fact very good for Ethereum security. Why? Because LIDO dramatically lowers the cost of staking by making it more accessible and um, by making it more liquid and so so on. So in equilibrium uh, with LIDO in existence, staking is much cheaper. And uh, as a result, the total amount of stake that secures Ethereum in proof of stake uh, is going to be much higher. So any outside attacker to Ethereum, you know, has a much uh, higher cost basically to, to uh, bring the system down. And then you can also, uh, argue that sort of Ethe- Lido is bad for Ethereum security in other ways, mainly that it introduces one more layer of sort of principal agent relationship, right? Because these stakers, they give Lido the ETH. And Lido then distributes it to different node operators. So um, if you compare this to a world without Lido, then stakers would directly choose the node operator. So there's like one more layer, basically, of intermediation between that. And so you could say, and I think the popular argument goes like this, Lido can exert soft power on these node operators in order to do certain things that can be bad for Ethereum. So that is sort of the first lens that I look at it from. Then the second lens is, uh, what if Lido didn't exist? So almost from the start, I have been operating under this assumption that sort of the the winner in liquid staking. So first of all, that liquid staking is superior to any other form of staking. And the users, like all things equal, will always prefer it because they want the, the lowest cost of staking. And liquid staking providers can provide that. And then between liquid staking providers, and this includes large exchanges, there's going to be a large winner take most effect because as a user why should you ever not stake with the largest provider that is sort of the most secure the most liquid the most accepted in defi protocols has the best tv uh, sort of the best uh, loan to um, value ratios and so on right so basically the the market leader always has the most chance to attract the next deposit that comes into the beacon chain and so going from this assumption, I was thinking, okay, so there is going to be one big winner from this. So what do we do? Like, we really have to make sure that like a group of centralized exchanges or what worked me even more is like a USDC version of liquid staking that is sort of custodied and highly regulated. So same as like, we saw this in, in stable coins, right? The, the tether had a big start, but then USDC started to crowd it out completely. And I was worried that the exact same thing would happen to liquid staking. So my approach was, okay, so we really need to make sure if there's going to be one large winner, and I found this outcome to be like exceedingly likely, that we ensure that this winner is the most decentralized that it can be. And this sort of really motivated me to choose Lido and support them very actively. So both that Lido can win this market, but also that I and others sort of exert pressure on Lido and really do the necessary research in order to um, make it as decentralized as possible.
0: So it sounds like you are not super concerned about its dominance amongst the liquid-staking providers. rune are you at all?
2: Um. So, like, actually, before Lido existed, I wrote this paper with Alex Evans from, well, now Bain, I guess, um, who about staking derivatives because you know, like, everything in crypto, people in in proof of stake land, Cosmos came up with all the ideas first, but never implemented them first. Uh, and staking derivatives actually like originated in the Cosmos ecosystem um, far before Ethereum. It sort of showed up in Ethereum and. The main result of this paper is just that staking derivatives do one thing: they they democratize access to opportunities, but they also have these leverage deleveraging spirals. So there's like this trade off. You kind of like want to balance the two of like, hey, small stakers or smaller participants can get like equal access to yield, but also like, hey, there's a ton of leverage weird leverage games that happen in the system, and you want to kind of like tune this system via a combination of incentives and sort of AMM fees and other things to, to make it stable. From that lens, I think having a dominant provider that has the most liquidity does actually make sense. I would say the thing I'm more, someone more worried about is that the, it, it's, it's not, and, and Hasu, of course, can can probably talk a little bit more about the the dual governance structure that's being, Thought of, but I do think Lido as a governance token does seem somewhat a bit scary. If you believe that Ethereum should effectively not have like on-chain governance for for its uh, existence, now, now I'm not saying that. I'm not even sure that's a universally accepted truth in Ethereum land. But certainly, of course, if you ask Vitalik, you would say it shouldn't have that. And so I think that that's sort of where I think some of the weirdness comes in. I think the centralized entities and centralized uh sort of staked narrative is definitely true. I mean, it's pretty clear that a, a lot like you know, hey, it's only 35% of the market that's in staking derivatives. So the rest is somewhere. And the re- that re- the rest of that is not at like hey, I'm in my basement like running a running a validation node. Like the, that's that's definitely not making up 64%. Most of that is at like finance and other places that offer this already. Although, of course, Binance's is, is not the, the USDC. It's more the USDT of this analogy. The interesting thing was that the, the Binance staking derivative crashed price-wise significantly far before the staked ETH, uh, price change. And there was, this, there was a while, I think probably like January through March, where people really thought there would basically be like some sort of parity trade between the centralized staked eth derivatives and the sort of real ones. And it turned out that was not so, totally true and people people were sort of a little more reckless on centralized exchanges. So, I think it's actually quite good to have a dominant source of liquidity. I actually think the liquidity fragmentation, even that paper from from March 2020, does show that if you have liquidity fragmentation, you have way more of these sort of like tail events that Kind of can blow the system up, and you, we already see liquidity fragmentation not causing these different assets that theoretically should be sort of like at par to be anywhere near each other.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Having more liquidity fragmentation causes more scenarios where the system blows up. That's yeah, so counterintuitive.
2: It, it's like if you think about people who are taking one way of viewing a staking derivative is also as as like basically sort of a collateralized loan, and in from that lens, there's sort of some liquidation condition, whether it's getting slashed or whether it's you know so, something that causes causes the the thing to to go under. And in that case, it, the idea is like you have it, it's exactly what we saw with Aave. like you you have these cascades, and you know if the, there's not enough liquidity, the cascades happen faster because like the price is changing faster, right? So there's sort of this natural, again, trade-off. And then this is why it's quite important to incentivize liquidity in multiple venues, but for the same asset. So I, I just generally think like we these are the vignettes that we've seen in practice that represent this thing that like you know theoretically existed. So like you know two years later, you could say that like hey, a lot of those kind of predictions uh, came true. But yeah, I, I, I'm not so worried about the dominance as much as the um, as much as like the governance aspect of, of Lido.
0: Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about that because, you know, as you mentioned, people have been pointing out that the owners of the Lido token LDO may not always have the same incentives, either as uh, stakers do, or even just normal Ethereum holders, or, or even the same interests as Ethereum itself. And so Lido did recently float a proposal to reduce the power of governance over Lido and one of the ways it's proposing to do this is through a process called ossification. You guys, I tried reading this proposal and I was like, well, granted, I was falling asleep, so maybe that mm-hmm. didn't help, but please explain this. This, yeah. I, I mean, it, it just sort of feels like you're limiting the amount that people can do via governance, but... That was as far as I got. So maybe you want to well, talk you, about it more, especially you, Hasu.
1: You got it exactly right. <laughs> Ossification means limiting the amount that people can do via governance. But let me start at an earlier point. So stakers give Eve to Lido, and then Lido gives it to node operators. We covered this. And this is a principal agent problem because sort of you have this one intermediary who might not be at all times incentivized to act in the best interest of the agent, which is stakers. And You have this both, even if Lido were just on Ethereum, you would have this problem. But it's sort of further exacerbated by the fact that Lido also is on other blockchains and and they share the same governance token. So right now, I think Lido, uh, sorry, Ethereum is is like 95% or more of uh, Lido's revenue. So really like all of Lido's focus is on Ethereum, but there's no guarantee that this is always going to be the case. So. We need to make sure that sort of LDO holders sort of that they don't sort of mix incentives across different chains, right? What's best for Lido, if Lido is on many chains, might not be the best for Ethereum that is just its own chain. So I think it's important for one to sort of disentangle the governance of Lido on Ethereum from Lido on Solana and from Lido on Polkadot and so on. And there are generally two solutions to that problem, to that principal agent problem. And the first is the one that you mentioned, is ossification. So if the agent uh, doesn't, like they cannot do anything wrong, like they literally cannot make a proposal that would hurt stakers, then that's of course way preferable, right? So we can see in this whole debate that Lido may not want to do anything, or ADO may not want to do anything that's bad for stakers, but just the fact that they cannot prove it to them and to Ethereum developers is sort of a problem that currently hinders them growing further. So uh, we can see that sort of um, this ability for governance to do something bad is a major problem for the customers, but also for Lido itself. And so they are really aligned in removing the ability to do anything bad. And the way that they want to do this is first remove any levers that would allow them to do something bad. And where that is not possible yet, for example, because Ethereum itself, Ethereum staking contract itself, the merge hasn't happened, withdrawals aren't finalized. So Ethereum's contracts uh, themselves are not yet ossified. So what LIDO wants to do in the meantime is introduce a dual governance model. And what this dual governance model does is... It allows the same as today, LDO holders to make proposals in governance and vote for them, but then the staked ETH holders can veto any decision that the LDO holders want to make. And so this way, if there were a decision that is about to pass on chain, then staked ETH holders can say, wait a minute, this is not in our best interest, and so we are going to block this proposal. And then it doesn't get enacted on chain, and so yeah, this uh, what this basically does is it prevents sort of the the, the most adversarial outcomes against Ethers, at least that's our hope, um, because they can always just prevent a proposal from going on chain. And to Tarun's point, I'm I'm not sure if this is on-chain governance. I mean, it's it's not like sort of we are making any proposals to how Ethereum should be changed, right? It's it's more like Ethereum holders can have a say in what Lido is not to do. So I think I would like delineate a veto right from on-chain governance in that case. I'm curious to hear what you think.
2: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think the interesting thing about this sort of bear market, like if we, if we take like the first bear market of Ethereum, it was like the DAO hack happened. We take the second sort of big bear market. It was like, hey, we had the ICO boom, but like no one could figure out what to do with it. But then over that bear market, we kind of developed DAOs that actually worked. A lot of the improvements that have been made were to like the structure of how DAO contracts work and like what types of proposals were allowed and like how execution of things on chain worked. Obviously, some of this happened on other chains, but in Ethereum land, I think some of the standards and norms were codified, things things were able to operate. And what I think we're seeing now is a lot of these like dual class DAO type structures. Like optimism has this sort of dual class DAO where they effectively have something that's like a house of representatives and the Senate in some ways. And I kind of feel like the, adding this veto is effectively doing the same thing. It's like it's, an, it's, a, it's a different form of like how do we have like dual class governance. Still, sort of a form of on-chain governance. <laughs> I just think it like has more more checks and balances, I suppose.
0: That's interesting. One other thing that I wanted to ask about here was: so at the time that we're recording, I should reveal to people Friday, June twenty eighth. Lido just released a proposal on whether or not it should limit the amount of stacked ETH that it should account for, like the percentage of staked ETH. By the way, it's a typo in my script. By the time that this episode comes out, this vote will have been decided. So um, since, you know, the vote will be over by then, it might be interesting as a historical artifact to hear how each of you kind of think about this proposal. You know, do you guys think that LIDO should self-limit? How do you determine what the limit should be, etc.?
1: Well, I think so. For one, it's not uh, guaranteed. I, I don't think the proposal uh, is necessarily over because it's a two-stage proposal. I believe there's one week of voting whether Lido should self-limit, and if the answer to that is yes, then there's another week of voting how it should self-limit.
0: Oh, got it. Oh, got it. Yeah, I just looked at the first the
1: first deadline.
0: One, right? Okay, so maybe part of the vote will have been decided, but not the rest. Yeah.
1: So I mean, I I definitely I have laid out my case why I, I think. Um, Lido should definitely not self-limit. I think the market for uh, liquid staking is is winner take most, and there are outcomes for Ethereum that are much worse, like a, a USDC of liquid staking taking the market. I think, and or as is saying, fragmentation, if if it were to exist, also has way more edge cases. So I think what we, so my approach from the start has been to support the most decentralized and liquid staking provider yeah that's what i will continue to do and so i'm voting not to self-limit but instead to ossify lido as much as possible and enact this uh, dual governance model
2: i don't know if self-limiting actually will work because um one other thing that's quite important is that lido staked eth actually can be used in in other protocols and i don't think we've even gotten to confidence in any of the other providers i mean so there's a very famous incident with celsius where they had a lot of eth at the stake ETH provider called stakehound and then they had this i wouldn't even call it a hack i would call it a little more like incompetence because of the, the way they they publish their bls sort of uh file but there hasn't been a lot of like faith in other staking providers yet and i'm not saying that can't happen but I feel like if you impose a cap, you will probably move most of that ETH to centralized exchanges and not to other staking providers, simply because of the track record so far and because people are skittish. So I just don't think the caps are that like necessarily... I think they have these kind of second-order effects that might not mean that they kind of end up being useless or like don't help that much.
0: So it sounds like you also think that this proposal is a bad idea?
2: I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea. Fully, I just kind of am not. I, I I'm not. I'm kind of fifty fifty on it. I'm like, I could see why you would do it from a social scalability point of view, perhaps. But I could also see second order effects being bad. And I'm, and I, I have no clue how you would choose what percent you want to make it. Do you make it the BFT threshold of one third? Do you make it like somewhere below that because of like slashing communication limits? Like, there's like all sorts of both theoretical numbers of thresholds where you would you would maybe cut it off versus like practical ones, like how much liquidity can you actually incentivize if you only have X percent of the market share. And I think like that type of analysis hasn't also been done. So I, I, I'm sort of indifferent. Um, I, I kind of, I agree with Hossi, that ossification seems better. I just think it, it, we have to find some protocols that have been able to successfully do that. And maybe this will be the first that can, can really ossify itself.
0: Yeah, I have to say the one thing about that is that I just think about so many of the kind of different emergency situations that can come up and as new developments happen, like there wouldn't there just naturally be changes that would need to be incorporated. So maybe I just didn't understand the proposal like I said earlier. Uh does it account for that?
1: It's so yeah, so yes basically. I mean, it's a it's a two two-step two steps for like a new proposal to go on chain after this uh, dual governance system has been put in place. For well, one, if LDO governors want to change LIDO, then they have to make a proposal. And and then there is a time lock. So I don't know what is the current proposal. It's is, it is like one month, I think. So plenty of time for the community to review the proposal. And then before it goes on chain, staked eFolders have the ability to veto the proposal and prevent it from going on chain. So, but if they don't veto, then it just passes like it normally would. So Lido can still be upgraded. It just cannot be upgraded in ways that would be clearly bad for stake defaulters.
0: Yeah, I just wonder, like I said, if there's some kind of emergency, whatever, some kind of bug.
1: Oh, you mean for Lido, the, if Lido needs basically the ability to react quickly to upgrade this protocol to protect stakers? Yeah.
0: Yeah then how do they handle that?
1: That is basically sort of the the trade-off that you always have uh, whenever you have a time lock, right? So a time lock protects the users of the protocol from the operator going rogue, but sort of a a, a time lock that is too long sort of fails to protect them from sort of forces of nature, basically, where where the operator could protect them. So I think we have seen some ideas around that, where, um, for example, what if sufficiently many stakers voted in favor of the proposal, then you know it would pass immediately. So I, I'd have to look up what is the current thinking around this in the proposal and then get back to you. Another aspect of this that I think hasn't
2: been totally deviated is there's some sort of like off chain logic that theoretically Lido governance controls that that is not really sort of true for staked ETH in the sense that there's sort of the Assignment mechanism which assigns which validator is getting which block, sort of like a, a pool, like this this sort of threshold signature thing. There's sort of the queuing model of like how do you do withdrawals? How do you rebalance withdrawals? Like what if one validator has a million ETH and one has a hundred ETH? How, how do you like divide up and, and someone wants to withdraw a thousand ETH? Do you take it all from the million? Do you take some from the million, some from the hundred? Like there's all these like nuanced things. Those things are not core to Ethereum, right? Those things are core to how Lido coordinates validators, those things can be voted on sort of separately from things that are core to Ethereum. And so that somehow, I I don't know exactly what the correct abstraction line is, but I suspect that Lido, the token, will be allowed to respond to these sort of like a well-called off-chain, but like these coordination mechanisms for the people who are participating in Lido as operators. That might still have a sort of like not ossified state or like a less ossified state. Like, and I, I suspect that will be one of the things that kind of either emergently happens due to some, you know, a, as the validator set grows or something like that happens or,
1: or not. Yeah, I, I think that makes uh, a lot of sense, not just the Lido, but just in general. I think whenever you have on-chain governance, so on-chain governance is basically a liability to your protocol. And so you want to limit it as much as you can. That's what we... Meant with ossification. So if you can, for example, say that only a certain parameter in your protocol can be subject to governance, but for example, not replacing the entire contract or not changing any parameters that don't need changing, then that's always preferable. So I think, yeah, these are like two efforts that are going in parallel. So ossifying as much as possible, and then for what cannot be ossified, just provide checks and balances for the users of the protocol.
0: Okay. So for final question of the show, why don't we just have each of you talk about what you think are kind of the main takeaways that people can learn from kind of all the recent events involving Staked ETH, especially in terms of users who are trying to figure out, should I use one of these like good staking protocols? If so, what should I do with the Staked ETH, You know, et cetera? Yeah. If you could just talk about how you think about these things, that'd be great.
2: So I think I think like the main lessons we learned are a liquidity optimization for derivatives is like quite important it needs to adjust with both the leverage in the system and sort of the types of users in the system and I think like obviously that's that's improving over time and but uh, you know of course you know these tail cases are the times you learn where you're caught naked the most I think the other thing that's important to 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 reason about is sort of the fact that a there's so much uncertainty in the merge time i i i think like you know i I think it would be irresponsible to say hey like the merge is definitely happening by x like some people like to to say i just basically say if there's some variance in that time uh, expected time to merge then there's also some variance in your yield because you're your 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 notion of when you realize that yield is is now has some variance in it, right? So that has to get priced in somehow, and I think that because of that, these derivatives at least offer you some way of earning some income, you know, via like providing liquidity to these curve pools or lending in AVE that. It kind of, at least partially, compensates for this like time risk, this variance in time risk, and so I, I think that is a reason they're, from a financial standpoint, just strictly better than the centralized versions, because the centralized versions can't really escape the exchange. Like, maybe Binance will make it so that you can use it in BSC or something, but like I, I just don't, I just don't see it. I just don't see this compensation factor coming from the centralized entities. And if that can be the moat for the decentralized ones, that's probably the like, best long-term outcome. But I, I also just think sometimes, especially Ethereum developers, are a little irresponsible with their like, st- statements. <laughs> because there's just a lot of investors who, I, they don't read the Ethereum 2 roadmap. They're not like, reading the, the GitHub issues. They're not reading the pull requests. They're just like, oh, like, this guy on Twitter said it's happening in March. I'm going to go buy a bunch. Yeah. And then, I mean, like, you saw that with Sue, like, I mean, he was like, yeah. he would just, like, tweet this stuff. And, like, I was like, you know, somehow, like, people, ne- there needs to be some form of, like, structured PR about things with uncertain timelines that isn't just like, yeah, it'll be done by August.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's not the statements that they make. It's the lack of statements, right? So you have this huge demand from the community, from media, and from investors to sort of get confidence uh, levels. On when the merge is going to happen. How is it going? What are the remaining roadblocks? But there's just, as Terun says, no structured PR around this. I mean, they could just put something on the website and, you know, update it occasionally when new information comes up and have some kind of official stance. But so uh, the absence of an official stance is sort of what creates this, you know, confusion, I think. And yeah. So I think that's, that's one takeaway. I think there are some takeaways for different participants. So I think if you're a holder of Staked Eve, then I think, I mean, this was a reminder to be careful uh, with your use of leverage. I mean, crypto is so volatile that every cycle, just a ton of people get just blown out from using leverage irresponsibly. And I mean, I would argue that you don't need to use leverage at all unless you, like, you really know what you're doing. And then you need a good pricing model so that's sort of the, this, the next takeaway that it turns out like a lot of people actually don't understand where staked EVE should trade in relation to EVE and sort of what are the, what are the sort of the forces that, that push it there. Then if you're a holder of EVE, then I think now sort of the discount is like at less than 3% at the time of, of, of recording, um, but it used to be at like 6, 7%. So if you're a holder of EVE, Uh, And you have been looking to stake and maybe you haven't made the jump. And I think for many, this has just represented like an an opportunity to buy EVE practically at a discount, right? Because if you're an EVE holder and you're willing to, you don't need to sell for one year and you can just sit out the price volatility, then at some point this was like a 10, 15% free yield for you basically, right? Because you were buying it at a discount, but then you also get the staking yield on top. So The staking yield were 5% and then the discount was 7% and you would get 12% in EVE dominated for waiting one year, right? So cleaned up for any risks that you incur in the meantime. And then the final takeaway for me is, and this is like, oh, like this is like one of my favorite topics at all in crypto, which is governance is a liability to any protocol. Uh, especially DeFi protocols, because it makes it more expensive for customers to trust you, and so you want to reduce it as much as possible, right? And so, to me, this just validates, like in a massive way, sort of the whole, you know, reasons why we use blockchains in the first place, because in the real world, companies are spending so much money in creating trust with their customers because they cannot prove to them that they cannot misbehave, right? But blockchains allow you and smart contracts allow you to to prove in an incredibly cheap way that like your business is going to do exactly what it says it's going to do. And to me, this is just, I mean, this whole saga to me is just like just further validation that blockchains are incredible technology.
0: All right. Well, this has been an incredibly fascinating discussion. Thank you both so much. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work?
1: Um, I would say um, come follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm HasuFL. And um, yeah, you can check out my articles. uh, Everything's on Twitter. And yeah, also make sure to check out my podcast. It's called Uncommon Core.
2: Um, Yeah. And I think Twitter is also probably the best place. Uh, It's, Tarun, T-A-R-U-N Chitra, C-H-I-T-R-A and yeah, a lot of my work and research is is also online and um, yeah, so happy to but I try to talk about it on Twitter a lot, so it's probably the easiest place to find it
0: Okay, yeah, and you can also listen to Tarun on the chopping block here at Unchained All right, you guys, it has been such a pleasure having you, thank you so much
1: Yeah, thank you so much Laura and thanks Tarun
0: Thanks so much for joining us today to learn more about Hasu, Tarun, and all these issues around snake teeth. Check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pilchard, Juan Aranovic, Pam Majimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.